Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price and I'm your host. Today's a pretty quick introduction and we'll get straight to the interview. This is kind of a weird circumstance because I've had today's participants book on my desk or in my library for quite some time and we ended up connecting and I'm glad we did and it's a perfect timing as far as my development and kind of a lot of curiosities about indigenous traditions and shamanism and Jungian theory and psychology. So I'd like to introduce you today to uh, C. Michael Smith. The book is Jungian Shamanism in Dialogue, Retrieving the Soul, Retrieving the Sacred, and uh, enjoyed reading this. Again, it, it just kind of uh, slept perfectly uh, within my uh, within the framework that I'm operating in, in the podcast and the interviews. Um, l- let me get to his bio, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, some links to his information, and then we'll get started. Uh, C. Michael Smith is an internationally recognized Jungian psychologist, medical anthropologist, and shamanic teacher who's developed a foundation for life mentoring, drawing upon a synthesis of these traditions, originating with his book, Jungian Shamanism and Dialogue. Michael draws from the best of disciplines in Jungian psychology and cross-cultural indigenous shamanism. From them, he has creatively synthesized a powerful philosophy and system, archetypal heart psychology, which is the foundation of his work and which employs the most potent techniques and assessment instruments for clarifying your life calling and potentiality, and has tools such as archetypal diagnosis and assessment through a psycho-shamanic technique he's developed of guided for archetypal journeys to get you cooking on all burners so you can bring your gifts to the world, realize your vision, or bring your creative ideas into the marketplace and share it with the world. Along with this, he's developed a technology for locating the little devils, in quotations, these self-defeating tendencies and limiting patterns that can disempower and keep you from manifesting your dream. Once identified through core questions and collaborative in-searching, Michael shows you how you can transmute these little devils into allies and resources rather rather than self-defeating forces that troll your best intentions. Sounds exciting. (laughs) Uh, Check out uh, Michael's um, crownestshamanism.com. That's crowsnestshamanism.com. C-R-O-W-S-N-E-S-T-S-H-A-M-A-N-I-S-M for the benefit of those who are listening without video. And uh, check his website out at cmichaelsmith.com. That's C-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-M-I-T-H.com. Michael, thank you for sitting for the interview, and thank you for the ongoing discussions, and I'm excited and eager to uh, continue the conversation. I feel grateful. Uh, So the website for The Sacred Speaks is thesacredspeaks.com. That's T-H-E-S-A-C-R-E-D-S-P-E-A-K-S.com. Uh, the Sacred Speaks, if you're listening on audio, is also available on video. Uh, I'll ask that you just kind of ping over to the other one, whichever one, uh, wherever you may be. So if you're on audio, please go subscribe to the YouTube page. And if you're on the YouTube page, you can go subscribe at any one of the podcast affiliates, uh, Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, uh, and SoundCloud. Uh, the Sacred Speak. oh, and check out the website because there's a lot of information about the project. It's forever expanding and I hope if we hit our deadline on in August, uh, we will release a YouTube series that I've been really excited to uh, to bring out. And I've I've done a lot of the preliminary work, and the design team is just kicking ass. And a question that was posted on YouTube recently was about the music, 
And so the music is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. I'm excited to bring these two fellas, uh, Toby Pipes and Nolan Teese, back into this uh, cosmos because um, they're going to be scoring the YouTube series and I get to work with some old friends. Uh, so thanks, Nolan and Toby. Uh, so that, yeah, somebody, oh, Clouds. That's right. Clouds is the song. And if you search out their stuff and find Clouds, there's a good music video and uh, I highly recommend it. I, I love the song. Uh, the Sacred Speaks is sponsored by or brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative wellness clinic that my wife, Lila Scott Price, and I started some time ago. Uh, we have a number of clinicians and acupuncturists and uh, mindfulness experts working at the place. So this is kind of the um, where, where people can come in and get, um, uh, get some healing. Uh, so check us out at thecenter4has.com, T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-H-A-S.com. And we've also got a YouTube panel discussion called Get Centered. Go to YouTube and just type the Center for um, the Healing Arts and Sciences or Get Centered. I think Get Centered kind of takes you around to all kinds of other places, but uh, try either way. Uh, and of course, you can look below and there are links to all of these uh, spaces. I think that's it. Other than uh, good stuff happening with interviews, I'm excited to announce that I'll be talking with Mark, Mark Plotkin. His podcast is Plants of the Gods uh, for anybody who wants to geek out and get a little uh, preliminary research done. Um, we'll be talking probably next month, so it won't come out for another two months probably. Um, I've got another uh, several fantastic interviews coming up on Tibetan Buddhism and then transpersonal psychology. Uh, and uh, But a lot of my energy is going, of course, into the YouTube uh, series. So what else? Um, yeah, I think that's it. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to the page. And uh, that helps with findability as it's growing. And share it. Share what you can with those around you. Uh, and I'm just... Uh, grateful. I just got a poem from Mackenzie Amara, a, um, a participant I interviewed a while back, and uh, it's fun. And this, this kind of interaction is, is really exciting. Um, part of the idea is to have a kind of communal conversation about, um, about uh, all the exciting ideas that, that you are all exploring. I'm assuming that when you're listening to this podcast, you're a fellow wanderer. So uh, we'll wander together. Uh, for now, we'll leave it there. I, I give it Iliadi's rigorous definition uh, is uh, a practitioner of a technique of ecstasy, meaning really an altered state that's very strong, a trance state of, whereby one leaves the body. That is, one leaves the ordinary state of consciousness uh, and moves into the other world or another dimension. Uh, that's not the uh, social egoic reality. Uh, and that's been called the spirit world. And there um, navigates and charts uh, the territory as experienced in their journeys, visions. And uh, that becomes pragmatic uh, and a benefit to the community because the, the shaman can go in search of uh, lost soul or lost energy or uh, something that's dissociated or cut off. And uh, 
retrieve it in some sense and uh, put it back in the, the body, back in, in into the personality system where it belongs and can uh, extract or remove or help in that process of removing energies or contents that don't belong to you, but belong to something else or someone else. Uh, Iliadi, and I, I, I was liberal in, in using his definition, but uh, he, he structured it that way so he could track its uh, historical movement around the planet. And he had this idea that it, it originated in Siberia. And uh, this has been pretty much debunked now. But um, uh, nevertheless, he didn't want any type of ecstatic healer or religious uh, healer to be confused. Uh, he wanted, uh, he was tracking this technique of ecstasy whereby you journey into the other world and for the benefit of your people or the landscape and its creatures on which you depend. That's what he was tracking. So uh, that's not well understood today. The, the term shaman means any kind of medicine man uh, from any culture, uh, including especially modern culture, uh, postmodern culture, and everybody seems to be calling themselves a shaman. When I wrote that book, it was in 1991, and uh, finished it in 1991, and Robert Moore took it, and he was going to publish it, and it sat around for five years before it actually came out. Uh, but uh, at that time, uh, the, the American public at large didn't know what that word meant. You know, scholars, you mean analysts, they knew what it meant generally. But it, it was not in the common coinage yet. Thanks to Joseph Campbell, some rock groups. Uh, <laughs> it's always the rock and roll. Things like, yeah, and the revival of the psychedelic uh, movement, mm -hmm. plant medicines and this sort of thing. Uh, it became a popular term. But uh, a lot of what goes on in the Amazon would not be considered shamanism by Iliadi's definition. Elements and motifs that uh, certainly are part of what he was charting or mapping. Uh, I want to say one other thing about the word. Um, in the beginning, I thought, yeah, I'm a shaman. My experience at least fits what Eliade was talking about, my calling and initiation and all that. But um, I prefer to say I'm a shamanist because people are using this term like it's some honor or privilege or uh, professional identity or something like that, or a destiny like your daimon has called you to be a shaman. And people get all excited and wild, they get inflated yeah. And uh, mm, this is not a good thing. And also it belongs to the Siberian Tunguzic peoples. And uh, I think we need our own word. But at the time I was writing the book, it was fresh enough to me, you know, and it was a term that made some sense of my own experience. So I used it and I wanted to kind of build a bridge between uh, psychology, uh, Jungian psychology in particular, and shamanism. So I would have a platform in which to work because there were no existent platforms 31 years ago. <laughs> well, and my, my exposure was young. I, I, was, uh, I was exposed to a couple of the tribes in my family. We would travel to Oklahoma, and I'm sure this was something that was uh, um, somewhat touristy, you know. But, but when you're a child and you're exposed to a new culture and certainly one that immediately captivated me, as the kind of native indigenous culture of 
certainly s- Southern North America, uh, it stuck with me so that, that, that my curiosity about um, what I didn't know then, you know, because I would have said something like, yeah, the Indians are really interesting and connect with nature and there's a certain um, community piece and there's a warrior piece and there's a with nature piece. Um, but what I would say now is there's something about indigenous communities all over the world and the the ways in which they establish healing and connection and community and rites of passage and ritual and so on and so forth is somewhat patterned and um, and I I even romanticize it. I, you you I, I want to hear what you have to say about that later. But um, so this my exposure to or my my understanding of shaman um, really came online with a, a pretty controversial, if not debunked. Uh, person now is Carlos Castaneda. You know, I mean, when I was in my teens, I was uh, late teens, I was reading Carlos Castaneda and had pretty radical, I would consider alternate states of consciousness during my reading. And, and then I've heard the, the critique of Carlos uh, that, that I don't really pay much attention to that because I'm not so much concerned about what actually happened or what is, what is fact. What actually happened to me was I had some pretty radical experiences while reading this fellow's books. And, uh, and I don't need to, I mean, that could happen in reading Harry Potter. You know, I'm not, I'm not concerned about mm-hmm. what is true or not. Mm-hmm. But, but, I, but, but at least the narrative goes, now that I've been studying psychedelics too, there was a, there was a rush on Mexico after uh, uh, Gordon Wasson put out uh, his, his um, time, uh, Life magazine in the late 50s, 57 or 58. Right. And so, of course, everybody is, is tracking down the, uh, um, uh, the mushroom. Uh, but there was plenty going on in North America with uh, mescaline and, and peyote. Um, so uh, the one thread I want to get into certainly is the Carlos Castaneda-esque influence yes. of shamanism. Um, and that seems to have some energy for you. Do you mind if, if we talk about kind of the evolution of shamanism in North America? Uh, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Take that thread. Okay. So... Uh... I like Castaneda too, and learned a lot from Castaneda, even though um, he, he's a great poet and writer. Yeah. There's no question that, uh, you know, I don't know if he's up there with Dante or not, but it's a pretty amazing achievement <laughs> yeah. with these books. Yeah. I've read them all and reread them Me and too. studied them I and, keep going and back. practiced it. <laughs> <laughs> what I could, you know. Uh, uh, I, I think we have literary license. There, there was an issue because he was getting a PhD doing a dissertation uh, on this uh, supposed Yaki culture yeah. with this uh, a man of knowledge, the CEO Don Juan Medes. And uh, that's not true. In fact, it's known now he's working with uh, Tata Kachora, Huicho. Uh, medicine man, which has no connection with uh, the yaki, and they use peyote, you know. Right. But uh, it's evident uh, because I, I talked with uh, a man in Oaxaca who is a professor of uh, Mexican history, and he's also a, in a very ancient lineage of Toltec practice. It's called Toltecayotl. And it's a whole health system based on Toltec principles. And I recognize almost anything Castaneda said and what this man is talking about. Plus, we have the Ruiz family with uh, 
generation after generation uh, of Toltec tradition in that line, the so-called Eagle Knight lineage. And uh, it covers a lot of the same territory. I'm sure they read Castaneda, I'm certain of it, uh, because they use a lot of his slogans and buzzwords and mm-hmm. sort of thing. His amazing language, like the knock of the spirit, you know, <laughs> the death defiers, <laughs> the silent knowledge. Uh, these yeah. terms are very catchy. This is part of uh, Castaneda's genius, you know, just to rip out and grab your imagination, now, hook your attention right now, totally. you know. Yeah. And that's a sign of a great uh, shamanic gift to be able to hook the attention of others and teach them something. And at that, he was a master. He was not, in my opinion, a master of Toltec. And um, that he's, he failed, uh, even, even though he reached a Nawal or teacher status, according to his books. He himself admits he failed. You know, he ends up in Los Angeles with a couple of apprentices and he ends up getting rejected by his whole party that he was leading, you know. And uh, the problem was uh, Castellani was getting rich and famous and it was un- under constant demand by his publisher to produce. Well, Carlos, we need another book. What do you say? You know, <laughs> you know to keep them coming. So he was spending all of his time doing that. But what I see in him, the limitation is that everything is um, fear-based. He really got the concept of the Mysterium from end and down. I mean, he could scare the living shit out of you. You know, uh, his you know his description of uh, the ultimate reality. You know that. Uh, we, we think of the universe, uh, consciousness is evolving. This is the current flatland paradigm. You know, uh, you know uh, particles get together, you know, and then they, they become atomic uh, nu- nuclei with particles around them and so on. And they become molecules. And uh, at a certain stage of complexity, we start getting glimmerings of intelligence or consciousness. Mm. Not in Castaneda's world. Everything is aware energy, you know bubbles of energy you know with tentacles stretching everywhere and uh, everything is alive and conscious and in fact there's only one being you know it's just great mystery <clears throat> that he calls the nahual using it in a very abstract sense you know but uh this thing i mean in his world there's as much fear as there is mystical fascination, you know, the fascinants and uh, the tremendum that makes you shudder and crack your pants and so on, yeah. you know. So this reminds me of the Red Book and Jung and Jung's description totally. of the divine and, you know, and you don't have a good experience of the holy if you don't have the mysterium and the tremendum together, mm-hmm. you know. It should undo you. Ayahuasca can do that, for example. That's kind of a good mushroom ceremony, good, powerful, sacred mushroom ceremony. Can just uh, rip your mind apart, you know, (laughs) Uh, in some uh, delightful and sometimes terrifying way, you know, because it's unfamiliar, you know, and you're in in touch with a a power that's uh, so much bigger than you, it's not even knowable. In 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 the Toltec world, you, you have your own immediate uh, mind uh, pretty much the head stuff you know and then you have your other self the double it's like Jung's number two and you can mm-hmm. know that even though much of it's unknown you mm-hmm. can actually work on it and get to know it and uh 
then you have that part of the null wall, which is unknown but knowable, if you spend your life walking a Toltec path, you can uh, get to know more and more of it. And then you have the unknowable unknown. And, uh, you know, the universe and, and multiverse, whatever it is, is far too vast. And what is going on, we will never know. <laughs> Not an infinity of lifetimes. We'll always have this tiny bit of knowledge yeah. in a very complex, multidimensional universe. I mean, uh, nobody better than Castaneda, not even Dante, gave me that sense of wonder and mysterium. You know, so I give Castaneda a lot of credit for that. Well, you, but you, I had, you put yeah, his name in a, in a parenthetical, and I thought, oh, all right, that's because. And I was eager to actually have this conversation about uh, him because, from from a very personal and private space, when I read his work, I was nineteen, twenty years old. I had no idea what to do with what was happening. You know, and and I, I, a lot was happening, and I didn't. Um, I still don't know what was really happening then, but it was radical, and and I just kept going back to his books, and I I you know I read one, I read three, I read six, I read all of them, then I started over again, and it it was so foundational to what I would have called some kind of spiritual warrior or something at that point, you know, but uh, but it was pivotal in in um, in helping me have a bit of a language. And I would say that other than, I mean, probably Castaneda's work, uh, certainly Jung's Red Book, uh, and, 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 and a book like uh, the Book of Job, uh, both Answer to Job and the Book of Job have been some of the most important literary works I've ever been exposed to. But, yes. but to dig into mm -hmm. Castaneda with you today, I've, I'm quite eager to see where this thread goes. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I've been, I've been teaching at a Total Tech uh, Coyote uh, Center in uh, uh, the Oaxaca area, um, and it's in Morales State, mm -hmm. and um, it's just fascinating because it's pure Mexican traditions and wisdom. There, uh, it's Aztecs, mostly Mayans. Some of the Mazatec people come, even healers. Uh, I have the honor of teaching there, but it's always, when I do this, it's always in an exchange. I'll teach you, I'll share my knowledge, you share yours, so we can benefit. Right. And my 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 Jungian title is a big draw. Yeah, I bet. In, in indigenous cultures. I don't know why, but they're really interested in Jung. I guess because it builds a bridge for them to the modern world. Right. So that's what attracts me in, or they, it's how they attract me in. But I want to learn their ways and systems, see see what could be beneficial for my own culture and people, you know. And um, uh, I can tell you, it's very much alive what Castaneda was reporting. I, I see him in some sense as a journalist. Uh, I know he was in uh, um, Oaxaca. Uh, quite a bit and uh, when I was uh, down there in 2018 or 19 uh, I was doing a workshop with uh, Mayans and Mazatecs uh, and Aztec uh, uh, healers and Tata Kachora 
who was the real Don Juan, who's like 110 years old, uh, sent a big eagle wing uh, and a man to our ceremonies to to bless it, uh, in his blessing on this exchange of the Jungian knowledge with uh, this Mexican wisdom. That was a huge, uh, huge honor. But what it said to me was that uh, there's a revival going on of the old traditions in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're excited for them to come back and get out from the overlay of uh, Spanish Catholicism. Uh, you probably heard the word curandero or curandera. Sure. Okay, these are uh, terms that come from the, the Spaniards, really. And uh, it was their way of um, <clears throat> defining healers, whether male or female. Uh, so if you were shamanic or Toltec or whatever, uh, you could survive if you were a curandera. And if you were converted to the Catholic Church, you would not be persecuted. So uh, Catholicism overlays a lot of the ancient ways. And my way into Mexico was through curanderismo. But if you go deep enough, you find there's a lot of people that hate curanderismo. They prefer to call it a brujeria, brujero, uh, which is sorcery that Torncastaneda used. But it means a multidimensional person of knowledge who's a healer, who heals with love. I mean, there there are the dark kind of sorcerers, but um, they're in every culture. but uh, that's what got renamed curanderismo and Catholicized with um, some of the symbols, some of the wordings. Uh, uh, Tonat, seeing the great goddess of earth and moon, she was she she comes out as um, Mary, you know, the Guadalupe, Virgin to Guadalupe, and uh, she's loved all over Mexico because they recognize in her Tonat scene, you know. But uh, it's very much a symbol of uh, genocide, of cultural appropriation, of colonialism, the current Arismo is. And so there's an indigenous revolt now against it. And what's coming up is more of what uh, Castaneda was documenting. Well, that seems to be going on in more ways or more places than... Mexico. I mean, yes. there, there's something pretty yes. wild happening right now. But before yep. before we ex- go down that thread, um, I I do wonder. Like I, I, and pardon me, anybody listening who's not read Carlos Castaneda, but this is uh, maybe selfish because I just have to explore this with you. Um, th- there's there's something powerful about how. Um, I would say it was just radically otherworldly. His his writing his writing presents images that have not been imaged in my imagination before, and and I found it so evocative and enticing and 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 I, I don't know at the time I would do things like like be unable to read the next page because something was <laughs> happening. Like in yeah. one one scenario, I, I was sitting in a bar and. Uh, out, by, out uh, in the, on the patio by myself, and I was finishing one of his books, and it was a big day for me because I had the whole series. 
and I didn't have, or I didn't have the whole series. I had almost the whole series, but it was like I book number six or book number five, and I had number seven. So I, I and what I did was I, I I grabbed into my backpack and I pulled out the next book, which meant I was skipping one book in the series, and I opened it up, and a fly, out of nowhere, came and started flying around my book, and I I I shoot it away, and I I tried to get, and it kept coming back, like buzzing around all over the place. And after, you know, when you're reading that shit, I was like. Uh, okay. So I just closed the book and I said, obviously I am not to be reading this right now uh, because that's the essence is you pay attention to things that you tend to write off. And I was in that worldview for a while. I just find it magical. And I find myself wanting to go back there all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, if you can do mushroom ceremony or ayahuasca ceremony, you will find yourself in some of these uh, kinds of experiences just as well. I, I would say Castaneda's books were in themselves psychedelic, even yeah. if he did stop using them, as he says, you know. And that's a whole nother issue is, uh, so I, I mentioned uh, the movement uh, to uh, revive the Toltec tradition to come out publicly with it, because they've been in hiding for centuries. But uh, then you have the, like Don Miguel Ruiz and his sons, his mother, uh, call herself a curandera. They were Catholic, but his grandfather and uncle and on back, uh, these were more in the ancient lineages, you know, and uh, there was no four agreements or uh, anything like that. Right. You know, it was, it's a collateral. Every, all, all the knowledge was handed down in mythological images. Uh, and I know this from the Ruiz family, you know, it was uh, Don Miguel Sr., you know, who began translating that out of the mythologies into a publicly accessible set of principles that people could use, you know. But uh, I want to honor them, for you know, because they're in that Catholic, uh, current Durismo kind mm -hmm. of tradition, and yet there's a lot of that same energy that was in Castaneda. But as an artistic writer, Castaneda is hard to beat. Totally. Uh, you know, stamping, stamping out the human molds, <laughs> you know, this is the, the form of the human. And this is what we're actually worshiping. You know, <laughs> these are revelations that Castaneda had. Sounds a little bit like Jung and the concept of the God image. And, you know, so that's part of why the ultimate reality is unknowable, because we're always looking at uh, something that's a part of our own nature. You know, so it's colored by that. Your perception is possible, but it has its limits. You know, Castaneda talks about a two-step perception where um, normal perception uh, is always filtered by this ongoing internal conversation you have going on here based on social agreements and consensus that you picked up when you were being programmed as a child. Into yeah. The, yeah, right. So, And then your own wounds and stuff creates other thoughts and beliefs. And so all this contaminates or corrupts direct perception okay but then there is such a thing as a silent knowledge and what he calls seeing you know where if you pause if you can stop the world stop the mental process suddenly you have direct perception something like a zen awareness but it's immediate and you can see sometimes into other dimensions and inorganic beings you know um spirits ancestors, gods, who knows, aliens, uh, all kinds of things are possible with direct perception. 
But as soon as we start worshiping something, we start putting a mythology around it, you know, and wrap it back into the tonal, back into the familiar social categories. And so what we're perceiving is really the human form. But that idea of like the divine just stamping certain energies with the human form, you know, <laughs> who thinks like that? A powerful you know? thinker. Yeah, well, that that stuff captures your attention immediately. Yes, you know, it didn't. Mind. And awareness is an amazing thing. I mean, I've studied all kinds of consciousness-altering technologies, you know, but the Castaneda, he he could have written books on what is awareness. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what are you? I want to. Well, go on because I got a thread there. Well, uh, no, you go ahead. We, we can come back to it. Well, you were saying consciousness creating activities. I think that's the the phrase you said. So you've studied all kinds of consciousness creating activities. Um, oh so, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of uh, entheogens, plant medicines, psychedelics. That you know, I did the lily tanks way back. Um, uh, Holotropic breathworks. I, I designed my own uh, tradition uh, and program, and that that integrates more explicit shamanic techniques, in, in, in including um, uh, getting aligned with the tent and allowing things to happen spontaneously, and you don't even know what they are or why they work or where they came from. But people heal or they shift, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, and of course, you know, sweat lodges, vision quests, power quests, that sort of thing. So that's what I mean uh, when I've been studying forms of awareness or forms of consciousness and mapping them, creating my own maps and, you know, what, what kind of entities, what kind of phenomena are appearing uh, and what kind of realm do they seem uh, located in or attached to. Uh, I spun one off of one of John Lilly's maps that helps me for a while. And there's Ken Wilber's maps, you know, and that, there's that sort of thing. You can position them, you know, uh, in etheric and astral or low subtle and high subtle forms and this sort of thing. And right into the void, lucid dreaming. You know, I've been lucid dreaming for a dozen years, I think. And uh, I started by listening to shamanic drumming when I lay down to go to bed because that holds you at a certain uh, state of rhythm state where as you fatigue, you can go right into it. And that was amazing, traveling many dimensions. And then I stopped using it and I still continued to lucid dream. I was surprised every night when I lay down and close my eyes, I'm in a different reality. And I have never been in the same reality twice. Is that restful? Uh, Does your body get rest when you're when you're out there? Uh, uh, okay, most people would have their minds blown and be terrified. Some of the things I've seen, uh, I'm not. Uh, I have a guardian spirit. I feel anchored. I'm not afraid, really. But uh, there have been a few times when I got afraid, where I saw something that was terrifying. You know. Uh, and uh, that way I've traveled in many, many locations on this planet, 
but I mean, I'm talking mostly about other dimensions and entities that are hard to describe. A lot of which you might find in the folklore and this sort of thing, you know, ogres, elves, monsters, dragons, that sort of thing, but many far beyond that kind of imagination. You know? And um, I'm just curious about that. And for years I had the experience of the, what I called the caravan of the dead. And that started in lucid dreaming. It continued in the uh, sacred mushroom ceremonies. Uh, and I didn't know they were the dead. It's just, uh, I, I awakened at one point, realized uh, these are the unquiet dead, you know, and they're, they're reaching out to connect with me. Uh, and that was a big change. And then I started uh, exploring time travel and, uh, uh, you know, I don't mean this in some uh, schizophrenic, bizarre, new agey sense. I mean, just following the imagery and the feeling and the lucid dreaming state. You know, for example, when I realized I was dealing with the dead, I uh, found myself uh, going to each significant person in my life and actually recapitulating rapidly so I would come to peace as if I were dying myself and making amends before I go. And so each person I came to, former lovers and what have you, um, there was just an acknowledgement of what good happened between us, what bad thing happened between us, you know, something like an apology, you know, but a clearing out and a taking full responsibility or what's happened in the past. So this is known as recapitulation. I went through that. I recapitulated my whole life in terms of significant relationships in a matter of minutes. And then I thought, this is a really cool. I'd like to go meet my grandfather now. And like that, I'm back in the early 1920s having a conversation with my grandfather. And that excited me more. So uh, I went back to the 1890s. And from there, I started traveling thousands of years and then hundreds of thousands, exploring different species, different evolutionary stages of the planet. Okay. And eventually, I traveled through the whole cosmos to the singularity point of the Big Bang, so to speak, or the Great Flaring Force. And I passed right through that, and I was in another universe. And again and again, until I finally came through into some space that was um, pure, fluffy, cloud-like light. And even I didn't exist, but there was awareness, of course, and a sense of absolute joy. I think it's like the, you know, Satchitananda, you know, formless awareness, but uh, a rejoicing in just the fact of being and then I came back. Well, that was a huge expansion of consciousness. There and left me feeling clear and very unafraid. I, my my immediate reaction to that is so much curiosity. Like I, I have that like seeker. Uh, a heart you know i just want to you know know more and i 
I certainly want to experience, you know, but I, uh, thank you for sharing that. I, I, I kind of felt like I was there with you on one level. Um, and it, well, it brings up the, the, to kind of locate this conversation in your history. Um, again, I'm sure you say these things a lot when you sit for these interviews, um, but for any listener and myself included that maybe didn't get something in your book, you know, what, what drew you into this? Cause you've got two threads here. I mean, both sham the shamanism, but then also Jungian uh, analytical psychology. And so at, we can kind of pull maybe some of the Jungian piece into our conversation. I'm just curious about your biography. Yeah. When it starts is the question for me, but um, because I, I was uh, raised in a, uh, of an evangelical Christian family I had a father who was a minister and uh, some notoriety. And we lived in a glass house. And uh, even as a kid, I hated the theology. It did not make sense to me. And when I asked questions, I got beat for that. Um, it was considered sacrilegious to ask questions, but it didn't, it didn't change me a bit. Ultimately, that was very frustrating to the uh, person, I'm sure, that was being physically abusive. Yes, yes. And by the time I was a teenager, I, I, my father, who had a PhD, I could outthink him. And uh, this enraged him, you know. And when I say outthink him, I could press things logically to where he felt backed into a corner and then he would become violent this Thursday, which was never my intention. I was on a quest you know, for knowledge, you know, and for things to be coherent. So I would say something like that would be a pretty uh, important origin point because uh, at 19, I had a transpersonal experience, you might say, up on a rooftop, and I, I saw my life and my destiny in this vision. I was sitting on a rooftop uh, of our house, was also in a forest, but the rooftop gave me a little view over the tree tops a little bit, and the sunsets were spectacular from that vantage point. And on this particular night, the fog was rolling in, and I saw myself working uh, in Africa, and uh, I was something like, you know, an American doctor, and uh, I was working with indigenous peoples. I, I was working as a healer. There were these Arab tents all around me, but um, and a certain kind of tree that uh, really comes from Australia. But the trees go very tall without foliage, and at the top have these balls like of branches out on top. This is what I saw. Fast forward 42 years to 2012, and I'm invited to South Africa to... Uh, to be the kingpin in launching uh, a tradition of shamanic festivals in South Africa. You know, the, the story of colonialism there is just horrendous. And uh, there's like 17 official languages in Cape Town, South Africa, you know. But um, the thing was a permission to come out and show your shamanic colors, this sort of thing. So, of course, we're inviting the indigenous people sign people 
the St. Gomas, Kosha tribes, and, uh, and many uh, just uh, South Africans of Dutch or uh, uh, European origin who, who live in South Africa that are interested in shamanism to come. And we had a festival. And uh, they had driven me from Cape Town to this place near the Sandbush country. Um, can't think of the name of it now. But as we're getting close, I saw the trees of my vision 42 years earlier. And I started to get excited. I didn't even know why. You know, and as we drove in, the way Arabs pitch their tents and they drape out, spread out, I mean, couches inside and so on. This is the way it was. This was the setup of my vision. And here I am, this kingpin, you know, this, the, the major figure pulling this event together. And I'm showing how I do things with all these healers gathered around me to see what is it I do. And uh, that blew my mind. Uh, it's been blown many times, but that I would actually literally see my future 42 years in advance. I heard Gene Houston talk with Deepak about um, there are these possible futures, these lines that are like trajectories, you know, and you can actually pick them, you know, and uh, and then that that future comes to be, I don't know, but somehow at age 19, I'm on the rooftop and I see what I'm going to be doing in South Africa 42 years later. But that was just a small awakening uh, at 19. Around 24, I decided to go to a theological seminary and I got a master of uh, divinity and I got a master of arts in psychology at the same time. I was uh, going to read everything my father told me not to read. Okay. I started with Darwin, read Paul Tillich. I read the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead process in reality. And uh, I gave myself one year to see if there's anything of my father's worldview that could stand and it could not. And it came down. And then I had a year of nihilism, you know, an atheist, because I hadn't mm. thought about how, what do I replace that with? That was not very nice. Uh, and I was doing an internship for the psychology part in the state psychiatric hospital, seeing humans at their very worst, you know. And the unit they put me on was a forensic unit. So these were like uh, rapists, sexual, uh, uh, violent people. Uh, all kinds of criminally insane, not a friendly unit to work on with, with blatantly psychotic people. And uh, this did not uh, inspire uh, my vision of humanity any at all. The only respite I had was they had a library that was beautiful in this hospital and I collected works of Jung. Mm -hmm. um, here they had it <laughs> so i take breaks hide out in there you know and start dipping into young and he seemed to have something of a spiritual vision of things so that was a piece 
Yeah, and he also and then, uh, he also thought his dad's theology was shit. Yeah, right, exactly. I, I identified a lot with him yeah. and with the filmmaker Ingmar Bergman. He also had the same kind of crisis with his father, and so his films are really existential angst and mm -hmm. about the meaning of life and that sort of thing. Um, so to fast forward, um, I stayed with the theological thing for a while. I couldn't make up my mind if it was going to be psychology or, or something. You know, I, I thought maybe a professor of philosophical theology. Uh, but then uh, um, I had been uh, doing quite a bit of LSD uh, in my early 30s. And uh, I think this quickened the experience, but I love taking walks at night. And I love in the summer, the uh, street lights or moonlight uh, creating shadows on the ground. I love the shadow play. And I would practice a Castaneda-esque technique of uh, ig ig ignoring the light and just noticing the shadows and then reversing that, you know. How to see. I've done that many different ways. But, okay. And uh, for a long time, I was seeing this big bird. Um, turns out to have a kind of a thunderbird form to it. Uh, wings everywhere. And I mentioned that to my wife. And uh, she doesn't get it, you know. And uh, she's a very visionary type. But she didn't see what I saw. And... Uh, then that freaked me out a little bit. It's like, whoa, this is not a shared experience. Okay, and I didn't have a frame for it. And uh, this thing wouldn't go away. And not only that, the tree across the street from my house turned uh, into some type of magic tree. It had a gigantic serpent, uh, multicolored, wrapping around its branches. And... Um, all I had to do was look at it, and that thing would just light up, you know. And it got so wherever I went, I was seeing Thunderbird day or night. And on my way to work one day, I'm driving on the highway, and the road opens up. Uh, it's a visionary thing, but it opens up, and the car gets swallowed, and there's a descent into... Uh, the other worlds and uh, there's all kinds of numinous entities there I don't know what they were but they were fascinating and as I'm in a free fall inside my car looking at these entities um, a voice in my own head just says dude you're driving a car you gotta pull out well that was my guardian spirit you know, rescuing me from this it's all I could do to reassemble the ordinary world and stay in control of that car and get myself to work. So now this emergence of the spirit is becoming emergency, you know, and how do I control this sort of thing? This is typical of many indigenous shamanic callings where uh, the person is out of control and uh, may become psychotic or ill in some other way, but uh, their life's a chaos. And the job of the initiation is really to teach them to tame the spirit and befriend it and come into relationship with it. And uh, so I got back into Jungian analysis. I had been in it for a while. 
but I was out and I got back in it because uh, my ex-wife had said that I should uh, do that because if I went to a psychiatrist to talk about this, he'd put me on medication and mm-hmm. I'd be diagnosed, you know, and that seemed like good advice. So I called up my friend Tom Kaposinskis, who's an analyst in South Bend, Indiana, and started doing sessions with him. It was like in the second or third session, he says, I know what this is. This is a shamanic awakening. He says, yeah, what you need is, you know, find find a medicine man you can work with to help you with this stuff. He said, you know, the analysis can provide a container, some safety, you can process what's going on, but you really need somebody that knows the territory here. And so I did. Uh, and that, that ended up with vision, Sweat Lodge's vision quest, this sort of thing, and coming into a respectful relationship. Uh, really, much of what I underwent had bears some similarity to what Jung was going through with Felemon, uh, without the capacity to uh, uh, describe it in such detail or even work it uh, so originally as Jung did. I was uh, involved in a dialogue with this entity. Uh, Jung would call it a daimonion, you know, a, a personal guide who holds your destiny. Uh, and certainly, I've been just as much in the grip of it as he was of his own, and Freud was of his own. You know, not to compare myself, but these these are not everybody gets in the grip. You know, a strong grip is you got to do this. You you go nuts if you can't do it. Right. Okay. For some people, it's more of a gentle, glowing. Ah, love doing this, man. but for me, it's go crazy or do this. This is how not to be crazy. Okay. So I have to sing and chant and dance, and I have to do the healing ceremonies, and I have to be in constant contact with the, the great mystery and the great spirit. You know, More than contact, it, it has to back me up in what I'm doing. And it does that to my own guardian spirit, but that's how I gain, regain control. Uh, and it's similar to Jung, because Jung shifts from what he called the number one personality, the medical man with his social gifts and awards and all that to his number two personality which is his other self deeper more essential self okay and then his own daimonia all that has to be linked up and a conversation going between them if he wants to develop his number two he has to be in relationship with the number three the daimonia that's the same thing here and this is following Iliadi's classic pattern of the shamanic call and initiation. I mean, to me, it's clear Jung had a shamanic call. He didn't know what to call it that, but, you know, that's what it was. And later he he saw the analogies between what he was doing and that. I'll pause here because you may have questions. (laughs) A couple, I mean, yeah, questions, thoughts, images, all kinds. Um, it seems like we're moving into this. They're, they're just noticing the kind of threads in what you're talking about. You're looking at interweaving these uh, kind of current day Jungian theory and shamanism. And uh, what the the question that I wrote out in the margin in your book was about the image. And it, I wonder if we can, because I just finished with an appointment um, with somebody today, and. You know, it just takes a little bit of prodding. I mentioned to her, I said, "Hey, do you do you dream? You know, do you remember your dreams?" And she says, "Oh yeah, you know, I've had dreams." And um, it, it, at first glance, she she 
I was feeling like I would need to tend a lot to kind of orienting her to, to dream work. But she was a fast learner. I mean, within two seconds, she's like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, definitely. Got it. You know, I, I just, we're so thirsty for, I, I think this, I project this at least out there. We're so thirsty to have something meaningful happen inside of us. Um, you know, we keep mistaking and thinking that it's outside of us. So when you, I guess there's two threads um, and maybe shamanism is the better place to start because there's one I could turn to the page, but you're talking about what's the shaman doing, you know? And so you went through this like, well, there could be a, a possession, there could be an obstruction, there could be, a, you know, the sickness. And can, can we start there? You're like, what's the problem? Well, from a shamanic lens, what's the problem? From a Jungian lens, what's the problem? I can speak from the standpoint of the book or from where I'm at now. Uh, the book represents a good intellectual answer to that, I think. But, um, you know, I, I wrote it more than 30 years ago, so sure. I am a different place in my craft, so to speak. <laughs> Hopefully. Than I was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see, what Jung had to do with his, you know, the experience of the black books and red books that, you know, it's portrayed there. This is a tremendous engagement. He's definitely in Castaneda-esque territory right. working this stuff, you know. And he's overpowered. He's terrified at times. Uh, but he holds his center as he interacts, you know. And eventually, of all the figures uh, that he deals with, uh, it's Philemon who stabilizes and follows him through his life, you know. And he paints him on the ceiling of his bedroom on the second floor, I believe it is, of uh, Bowling and retreat center you know this is whole thing is the chapel there to his guardian spirit or his diamond um so what he had to do then uh, as a contribution to society meaning the number one people <laughs> okay is create a psychology and so he had to translate this mythic mystical shamanistic experience into a language for people who live in flat land in the early 20th century. Materialistic, overly rationalistic, inauthentically religious era where people have very little freedom, very little imagination. And science and technology are the new gods of the day. So he's got to create technical abstractions from his experience. And so Philemon, uh, becomes really, in my opinion, uh, the spiritus rector, which is an aspect of the self, capital S, that he defines. It's wrong to just translate that uh, into, that's the self archetype, no. Because uh, the self also is your totality, it's, it's all of you, your depth, your other self, you know, what we call the soul, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, and that doesn't guide itself. It's the spiritus rector that inspires and guides and protects the integrity of all that. So Jung has to define this in terms of self. His number two becomes the contents of the self, and his daimonion becomes the spiritus rector, that guiding function at the very center of the self. And in this way, he tries to give to the public living in the tonal, the spirit of the times, 
a flatland description as best he can. And the portals through the flatland are images and symbols, intuition and the feeling function. It's the way into the Nawa, you might say, for, for young. And uh, he did it beautifully. But since the Red Book finally became public, you know, it, it's better than I expected it to be. It's richer. But uh, I, I had already intuited it when I wrote the Human Shamanism book, you know, about what Philemon was to him and what was going on there was a kind of shamanic initiation. And it was quite clear that that was his guardian spirit. I think I used the word Daimo at that time. Mm. Uh, I forget your question. I forgot to remind me. Just pause and refresh the question. So the question I was asking was about uh, the, the, I said the problem and I didn't like it really that I oh, said the that, patient. You know? Yeah. The, 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 the worldview, right? So what, what young, young or Jungians are tending to how they envision the issue for the patient and how the shaman envisions the issue for the patient. Okay. So the scholarly version, which is what the book is and, uh, it applies to Jung as well, uh, is that uh, the shaman looks at the patient for what's missing. Something's missing that should not be. And something may be present that should not be. Jung does the same thing. You know, his word for something missing is not soul loss, but dissociation. Can also be projection. That has to be retrieved and owned and welcomed and loved by the patient. Okay. So he has the same structure on the intellectual conceptual level. What's missing that should not be? And how do we get that back? And what's in the way, what's intruding that needs to be pushed out or released? You withdraw projections. You can come into a loving relationship with your parts, including your shadow. Uh, where Jung is most like the Toltec is in his last words of memories, dreams, and reflections. The last two pages are about love. And he's quite clear there. His image of the divine there has been softened from the Red Book, where the dark side of God is so, the unconscious side of God is so powerful. But here he's come to realize, you know, 50 years later, that ultimately it's love. Love is the great mystery. And we can't even understand what it is, but all my life I've lived in it and been lost in it, and and uh, it surrounds us. Let's see if I can find his words. It's really striking. He says, "I sometimes feel that Paul's words, though I speak with tongue of men and angels, and have not love, might well be the first condition for all cognition or knowing." and the quintessence of divinity itself. God is love, the word affirms, the complexio divinity of the Godhead. Assent to it or rebel against it, but we're always caught up by it, enclosed within it. He's talking about love, the divine is love. And, um, You might say for him the self, its energy is ultimately loving. The analytic attitude is loving. 
if you have a part, a complex that you're working with, don't try to repress it, suppress it, reject it, project it, befriend it, draw close, enter into wherever a respectful conversation with it. So love has been there all along in Jung's writings, but he did not see it until old age, how it's the real thing. But he did believe, a la Marie-Louise von Franz, that it was the self that stands behind the power of the shaman. Okay, and if the shell, the self participates in the divine, and the divine participates, yeah, then the love of the shaman is present. And when you're present, the force of the divine will, which is love, the force of life itself, what the Toltecs call intent. Okay, mm -hmm. that's behind you. You align with intent, mm -hmm. and then you are incredibly interesting to the patient and you have hooked their attention just by your presence and that intention will let you know without any plan without any theory what needs to happen if you look at Jung in the moonlight he sat there present and in silence this is the woman who thought she lived on the moon, you know, believed yeah. it. Okay. And uh, she'd been in the hospital, I think, two years in the back ward. And, uh, nobody could help her. But Jung, Jung sat there day after day. And, and finally she opened up and she said, you know, I live on the moon. And uh, I forget what Jung exactly said, but it, he was like, tell me about your life on the moon. And she did, you know. And uh, after two hours of that, or a couple of days, uh, Young speaks and he says, you know, in, in talking to me, you've come off the moon and you can't go back. And she was upset because <laughs> she realized true she had a, she'd come out of her autism and established a connection with a human mm. she was trying to protect herself from okay now i did not think young knew what he was doing i don't think he was that brilliant i don't think anybody is okay he was feeling and he was following that energy that presence that intent and the patient opened for him just what needed to open when it was ready to open. And I find that all the time in my work. It took me a while. You know, when I finished up at University of Chicago, two doctorates, my head was busting with ideas right. and sophistication. Okay. <laughs> I was a better heal I was a better healer before all that training. Yeah. Okay. And I knew it. And I was so frustrated. I wouldn't get back to that. And one day I'm sitting with this guy that really awakens me back to that state. And uh, he, he was boring. His wife brought him to therapy saying, if he doesn't change, I'm going to get a divorce because I can't take the boredom anymore. He just sits on the couch after work, watches TV, drinks beer. That's it. There's no conversation, no sex, no vacations. We don't do anything. So I'm done. You know, you fix them or I'm out of here. You know, no pressure. So I, I worked. Yeah, right. I worked several weeks just trying to get to know the guy. And uh, how are you? 
fine. How was today? Fine. <laughs> you know, I can push it deeper. You know, well, what floats your boat or turns you on? EV. You know, it was these minimalistic responses. And after two weeks of sessions, I I felt like a failure. And uh, it was kind of humiliating. And, uh, you know, I'm also a musician. I have a classical guitar in my office, and I, I just picked it up. I started playing the opening riff to Stairway to Heaven. Because I didn't know what to do. I was bored. That's what my mind said. But he came along. Good. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm a musician, too. <laughs> Rhythm and blues and jazz, man. I've been a jazz band for 20 years, you know. And the next week, he went out and bought another guitar. The band he was in had fallen apart because the leader of the band had died, and he was depressed. But I didn't know any of that, okay? I just picked up the guitar. So afterwards, I said to myself, what happened there? You know, it's when I was defeated, when I did not know what to do, that's when something started to happen. And that was a big awakening for me. I thought, just get out of the way. You don't have to know what to do. Just be present and feel. So now I see every moment is like a creative opportunity. Let's see what's going to happen. Kind of like this conversation. We really have much idea what's going to happen here, but we just sit and let it unfold itself right. the way it was. Yeah. This is the real energy behind Jung's analysis of his patients. As many of them have written, he would just sit there, he'd be in silence, you know, and then he'd start talking about something. And lo and behold, if you first thought it wasn't about you, then you discover he's talking about your dream you had last night. You know? So he would go into a deep state where uh, he has access to the silent knowledge and through the, the connectedness, his loving presence that's very attentive. His awareness is highly attuned and focused on the patient, even though he may not even be looking at you. And the patient or the analysis can feel that and begins to open to it. Now, that's not in my book. Right. Okay. Right. But uh, that's the clarity I've come to since then. So beyond saying something's missing that shouldn't be and something's in there that shouldn't be, I share that. You know, the way Von Franz put it was, it's the self that is behind the shaman and what they do. So it's the scholars, you know, I learned that from Mircea Eliade. It's the scholars that come in and describe it in all these technical details. You talk to a lot of indigenous shamans, they, they won't know what the heck you're talking about. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's a different they have different. View. They have different, different language for different concepts. It's quite different than soul loss and this sort of thing. I would say energy, on some level, energy is a more common denominator across cultures to instead of saying soul parts or soul loss talk about energies you know because it seems to be a pretty universal indigenous experience is just energy every everywhere and it's aware and it's alive it's sentient even if we're talking about a stone or elementals you know mm -hmm. it, it's it's got a consciousness and it's got an integrity and uh, a presence and uh, is worthy of respect even though you might need distance from it or something. 
Well, that's my answer to your question anyway. Thank you. When did you find your first teacher? Well, certainly after I got back in analysis with Kapusinskis, and he said, go, go find somebody, you know. I had to knock around. Fortunately, I live in southwest Michigan, and we have Ojibwe's Potawatomi's, and uh, they have a local ceremony. And uh, I had run into uh, the guy who was the, the principal, the tribal president. They now they're corporations, not tribes. They don't use that language anymore, but it's the Pot- Potawatomi Nation. And uh, they're Ojibwe speaking, part of the Ojibwe group, uh, Gonquins. And uh, just a few miles from where I live, uh, they have their own uh, tribal grounds, their own police department, what have you. And anyway, this guy, Tom, uh, we exchanged knowledges with each other and formed to bringing me in. And it was not easy for me to come in. Even though I have some bloodline Cherokee ancestry, this, 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 uh, this is not cultural ancestry. It's not growing up in the culture and being a part of it. So I really had to fight my way in, you know, uh, as a pretty white man. But I did, you know, and uh, and I vowed uh, to not uh, exploit or culturally appropriate. But I was also blessed to use certain ceremonies and certain things. But uh, for nearly 20 years, I met in, in a local longhouse here. So they gave me the, what Jung calls the symbolic life, a way to start practicing and mm-hmm. this sort of thing. But uh, there's also the psychedelic part of me. Uh, for me, it's sacred ceremonies. It's not just popping LSD or something like that. Everything's done. Even if I do LSD, it's, I have a little prayer for the uh, ergot <laughs> fungi, out of which, you know, it's molecules originally formed, uh, but uh, with the mushroom, you know, uh, I'm doing prayers to the, the spirit. I, I call it Mami Cubensis, but but it's Teonanactal, it's uh, Donantin, uh, and there are other entities that come with it, like Quetzalcoatl and so on, uh, that show up for me and uh, actually do the healing. I'm pretty much uh, a hierophant that uh, does their bidding and what they want. And I do it willfully and gladly. And you talk about soul loss, you know, I can tell you what that looks like in a good old fashioned uh, tan and octal ceremony. Uh, coat comes in in living colors, a giant serpent, you know, winged serpent of beautiful colors, stunning, and just swallows people, swallows the whole room sometimes and you're in there and uh, People are, are going deep into their pain and their wounds, you know. And then I get a cue, like, I'll be taken into greater trance depths that I can't bear. When that starts happening, that's a signal, either from the mother or from Quetzalcoatl. Uh, and they want to use me uh, to, to be their voice or their hands. So then I, I just gesture to them in silent knowledge and ask, do you want this or, or that? And they'll acknowledge back through my breath, the rate of my breath, and through the depth of the trance that I go into. And I just learned this intuitively as I was working with them. So uh, I, I may go up to a person and just my mouth opens 
and there's some message coming right through for them. And once with this woman, she's in a room and uh, asked to inquire, and I said, what's going on? She goes, oh, I'm scared. I said, where are you? She goes, I'm in my bedroom. I said, how old are you? Mm, five. What are you uh, experiencing? I'm just scared of what? Of my dad. Uh, and I got the drift of it at that mm -hmm. point, you know. Uh, and then uh, I said, okay, we're going to move you from this place. And she, she followed my direction without touching her, followed my direction. And she kneeled down, put her head to the floor, and then she went to a rebirth. And when she came out, I gave her a pillow to be like a substitute for this little soul part, this little five-year-old girl that this woman had retrieved on her own and held it. And she curled up and eventually went to sleep with it while in the ceremony. So this is none of my doing, none of my brilliance. Okay, this is just me being receptive to the guidance that's coming through these entities. Now, this stuff, you know, uh, to a flatland mindset just sounds psychotic or crazy, but I can't tell you how many people have profound life-changing healings through that. And some of the most serious uh, possession states. You know, I've had people all over the world looking for healers, desperate because psychologists, neurologists can't help them. Uncontrollable possession is a horrible thing. You know? What does that look like? Um, so uh, it, can, it can look like somebody having a neuroleptic fit that doesn't stop, or it will stop for a while and then just start up spontaneously again. So they're flailing about and they're grimacing and... Uh, they hardly look conscious at all. That's one version. Another is somebody goes into a scream that lasts three or four hours. And a person may die from screaming. Uh, and their eyes are uh, just blank, like there's nobody home. Another type is very violent. Um, I've had women uh, who've been possessed, uh, Caribbean style. And those eyes are also, they go black. It's like it's all dilated pupil. Okay. And um, they can stink and they can be exceptionally violent, like the strength of several men, you know, start hurling people around and things around. So this is what I mean by extreme states. Richard Schwartz, uh, I don't know if you know him, the IFS founder. He's at Harvard uh, Med School now as a professor, but he's done this same work. Stan Groff's done it too. Mm -hmm. uh, Stan, Stan Groff does rebirthing to depossess people. But I had a lady from the Caribbean I met in the jungle, in the Amazon, who uh, during an ayahuasca ceremony, uh, she, she was in a possession state and the whole place, we thought the septic system had gone bad. It just smelled terrible. 
and uh, over over a week, she had several different ceremonies where the possession came up. The stench would come each time, so I knew it wasn't the system, but it was her. And she was quite violent, and she came um, back to America with me, and I had a retreat a few months later here. She came for more depossession work, and in that one, uh, we're, we're doing uh, holotropic-type breath work, trying to do the rebirth thing, and we're releasing dozens of entities. And uh, they're all children. In her history, she was in an orphanage when she was born and was there for several years, and there were many children that died in that orphanage. And uh, it became apparent to us they were finding a place as they were passing out in her body, this sort of thing. That was the sense of it. Um, but then suddenly I had great clarity. Uh, I realized we could uh, be depossessing her forever. And uh, I just said with absolute know knowing, call her by name, and looked her in the eye. I said, there will be no end to this unless you push them out and lock the freaking door. Now. Which she did do. And she hasn't had a possession in the five years since that. Okay. It was her desperation that brought her to the jungle and my workshop. But in there, I learned, uh, because I worked with the only exorcist in Iquitos, old lady, 85 years old. And when this woman's patient got violent, okay, I was turned to ask for the current there as help. And she already had a pail of cold water and she threw it on her. So I remembered that when I had a guy in France, okay, that was screaming for three hours. And I've got some really talented students who uh, really have tremendous intuitive capacities as healers, you know, and they wanted to work on this guy. So we pulled him out of this large workshop that I was running because he had brought it to a standstill. And one of them says, okay, he's possessed by this Egyptian God. I won't let him go, but I'll get it, he says. And over several hours, I kept coming and checking. And finally, uh, somebody came to me and said, well, we're afraid he's going to die or, you know, the police and the ambulance are going to come and they're going to shut us down. And we've got to do something. Would you come help? So I said, yes, I can stop it right now. And here's what I did. I had that information about the cold water. I said, get me a bucket of ice cold water. I also want a turkey baster, fill it with ice water. And I want a bowl of raw meat. And uh, I went into this guy, the bedroom that they now had him in, laying on his back, looked totally vacant, eyes completely dilated black. And he's screaming like he had the lungs of a choo-choo train, you know, powering breath through him and uh, I just got up on the bed and I put my face so that I'm eye to eye just a few inches away and I said you're going to come back now and if you even think you're going to resist I'm going to put this turkey baster up your anus and then I'm taking you to an ice cold shower and then you're going to eat a bowl of raw meat. 
immediately stopped. He looked at me, he looked terrified, and then he went back into the trance. So I told Luca, one of my gifted healers, the guy is seven feet tall. I said, take him to the shower. He just picks him up. He takes him to the shower with one hand. He holds him to the wall, and we hose him down with cold water. And uh, he said, I'm so cold. I'm so cold. I said, I need you back. I need to come in. You're, you're back, and you're not letting that entity take you out again. You know, he agreed. And I said, and you're going to eat this bowl of raw meat. And he agreed. Now, I had no idea what the raw meat was about, but I learned as soon as he started eating it, it made him vomit, which completely brought him back into his body, regrounded him somatically. And then we took the meat away. And uh, he's been coming to my workshops in Europe ever <laughs> since, you know, and uh, just having a great time. But uh, Luca, who I had him work with when I'm not in Europe, as a seven-foot guy, he's very gifted. And uh, he said, you know, you didn't heal him. You just brought him back. I said, yeah. I didn't want him to die. And I wanted our workshop to continue, so I knew how to bring him back. That's why I'm giving him to you. You work with him. Teach him how to work and shut down the openings that are allowing this kind of possession to have, which he did do. Yeah. But even the, you know, I got the idea of the cold water in the jungle. But the rest of it was just in that intuitive flow of the moment. And I had absolute certainty and that I would pull him out. And every time I have helped somebody in a very deadly psychotic uh, possession like that, I have succeeded because uh, I just know it's not my greatness. It's not my brilliance. It's not anything about me. I'm going in there with the soul force, the divine force. It's behind. So that's just like castinators writings could hook your attention and rivet you. It's the same way. You have to hook the patient's attention to bring them out. And they have to know you have the power behind you to do it. And when you know that, they know you know that. And phew. And I believe that uh, Jung was one of these kind of people. Made him so irresistible. Yeah, I mean, that split from Freud really um, highlights something that's, I think, evident in even the story you just shared, which is that the Western mode of thinking really has no space for that. Uh -huh. And, and uh, understandably so, he was his fears were of course realized um, you know when he uh, when he planted its flag in opposition to freud but it's as if he got the whole entire you know the tidal wave of western philosophical and religious and psychological traditions that were saying that's bullshit you know you can't you can't measure it and taste it and feel it and uh, so you're you're full of shit <laughs> But there are people all you know, over the place that have these radical experiences. You know, I've met a lot of gifted analysts too. They're, they're not all, I mean, some of them are just too much in their head and analyzing and using con Jung's concepts religiously. And uh, that makes me want to puke. But mm -hmm. uh, there are others that really get the shamanic spirit of the Jungian thing, you know, and practice in an analytical context in their own way. 
and it it just flies like that. Arnie Mendel, I don't know if you know of him, but mm -hmm. he was a former Jungian analyst that uh, was a Castaneda buff, and he was uh, a teaching analyst at the Jung Institute in Zurich in the old institute. And he finally parted with him when Von Franz called him and said, you know, you're not really a Jungian. And he goes, yeah, I suppose I'm not. You know, because he wasn't using any of your concepts. And she didn't wave to go. It was just his own his realization that I need to work and I need to write in a style that names what I'm doing. And that's what Jung would have wanted. He said himself, he doesn't want a bunch of Jungians. Right. You know. <laughs> no. And the, the Jung Institute, when, it, when he started uh, training people and giving, giving his blessings, what he did, he wanted them to work in pairs uh, and no certificate, no school, official school to go to. You know, you just did the analysis, you know, and you learned the craft with a master. And then you went out and you established your own. He wanted people to go in pairs. So you, you had Von Franz and Barbara Hanna together and uh, my first analyst, Helen Luke and Robert Johnson together, you know, and then they could be a support system for each other, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, it, it was really only because Jung was told that his psychology would die without an institute to perpetuate the teachings well beyond his lifetime that he went with it, but he had grave reservations because you know, once you start certifying people in a methodology, you run the risk of no originality and of pressing everybody into the same mold. Dogmatism is yeah. not not what he was about. Well, I want to be mindful of time, but I also I'm in thinking about beginning to wrap this up. I'm given you know all these radical experiences you've had. I'm, I'm curious if you'll comment on kind of the me modern medical and psychological healing and um, and what you see happening current day, certainly with psychedelics, what MAPS is doing, so on and so forth. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see the research there. Um, uh, I'm a little concerned that science might co-opt it too much, right. but it does seem like a necessary step to legitimize using of plant medicines, you know, and also of psychedelic medications. I'm very afraid of big pharma. I've already, you know, I just opened a, a, a Iboga center in um, South Africa. Uh, so it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a first class small operation, but, uh, and I don't even know what the price is, but it's nothing like what I see other retreat centers offering, you know, 30 days, $500,000. This is really upsetting to me, you know. Um, something like two weeks is three hundred thousand uh, dollars. This is the wrong energy, you know, to bring to it. Um, and uh, I'm a little concerned about um, psychedelic psychotherapy, um, probably because I'm biased shamanically. I, I I like to see the spirit of the medicine. Uh, which is the real engine. The, the, the medicine itself is a vehicle to open consciousness, to open and extend awareness and shift your assemblage point. Other things. That's a great advantage. But there are teachers that come with the medicine that if you don't use them, you don't get the full benefit and the most profound benefit of the medicine. 
So that's one of my worries. I'm, I'm not interested in the public just doing psychedelics or even psychedelic therapy, but in them coming into a sacred relationship to it as medicine and respecting the, the awarenesses, the intelligences, the spirits behind and in and with that medicine, the sacramental aspect mm -hmm. of it, uh, which I believe in the sacramental aspect with the ritual, the prayers, all that, the chants uh, has great therapeutic power. Now, uh, so from a medical standpoint, uh, you know, I, I, I've worked with lots of physicians, surgeons, neurosurgeons, um, people in pain. One of my specialties is, as a psychologist slash healer is working with disasters in hospitals where somebody's in acute pain or uh, could be related to cancer, a, a organ transplant, this sort of thing. And uh, somehow I'm able to, uh, to call my guides in a trance state with them on the screen at the other end, in the hospital, in the bed. And uh, through my guides, see into their body, see where the blockage is. Uh, recent recent case was the, the woman with the lung transplant that you might have heard about. I don't know, but uh, uh, she was in pain because when they do the lung transplant, they clip your, they pull your chest cage back, your rib cage back, and clip it to your shoulder blades. So there's this tension, hurt, and so she was. Uh, on a scale of zero to 10, she was uh, near the 10 point of unendurable pain. So that was a real concern and it was going on for days. And uh, she also had uh, pain from not being able to uh, pass her bowels, mm -hmm. move her bowels. Um, so in that, I'm, I'm, I'm looking in and I'm seeing, okay, just make a gesture and unclip the etheric aspect of her shoulder blades and the rib cage, which I did and which she immediately relaxed and the pain went to zero. And then I massaged, you know, we're miles away. She's in Wisconsin, I'm in Michigan. I did this around her belly, belly but very slow starting in the navel. It's called an empacho in Mexico, but it's moving the energy around the same direction you're colon moves and right on down and no sooner did i do that than she had to be carried to the bathroom because her bowels let loose i have no idea how that works i have theories about it okay but i just trust the guidance that's coming to me for one of a better word it's just a kind of a direct silent knowing Western medicine has no framework for that. No, it doesn't. And I got to tell you, I had some patients that are some of the most astonishing people, not only I've ever seen, but dreamed of what they can do, uh, what they experience. Yeah. yeah. It, in fact, I thought I could write a book just about the unusual people that I've met. You know, I had an opera singer once come to me. Maybe we'll close on this one. This was like 20, no, almost 30 years ago. So this, is, this was a, at a point where I was just really reopening 
after my PhD studies and everything. And uh, she came with her brain scans to my office and I went through them. Uh, she, she had the one uh, where they mm, mm, you know, slice the brain up, you know, uh, I can't think of it. Uh, but, it, you know, there was nothing there to be found. I knew that. Uh, but she had just been released from a psychiatric unit because she was going crazy with this imbalance in the inner ear, she thought. But there was no imbalance. There was no problem uh, on the scan with the inner ear. So she ended up being referred to me. So I often get these really whacked out cases that nobody can help. Uh, and she said she came to me for hypnosis. She thought I could heal her through hypnosis. I felt daunted, but I said, okay, let's give it a try. So I said, take a deep breath, close your eyes. She was already in trance. She broke into a voice singing my favorite song in German. Freude, Schöne, Gotte, Funken, Tochter, Raus, Elysium, Hübetreden, Feuertrumpen, Himmlische, Dein Heilstum. And on she went in her Chicago operatic voice. <clears throat> and when she was done, she opened her eyes. She sat up straight. She had the sweetest otherworldly voice. And she told me everything that was wrong with my life. In great detail, knowing about problems in my own marriage that led to a divorce. And I was resisting that and afraid of hurting people and all that. And she addressed that. Didn't even know me in this moment. But it was clear to me, there was something like an angel, you know, for want of a, a better word, there was an entity that came through her in that trance. And uh, I was, you talk about the numinous or the steering tremendous. I was freaked out, <laughs> you know. Okay. And then she closed her eyes again, opened them, the angel was gone. And the, the woman is wondering when we're going to do hypnosis. I said to her, what just happened? And she said, no way. I said, said you know what? The dizziness is gone. <laughs> so get this somehow she got dizzy to come deliver me a message and she had to pass through all that medical and neurological stuff to get to the right person to deliver that message <laughs> it's castaneda style stuff mm -hmm. it's mind-blowing isn't it it is well, and, and you know, I know we got to find out. Sorry, go yeah. if I hadn't had Castaneda and Young and Groff, people like that that were mapping, uh, I could have easily just ended up nuts. Well, and that's the thing that I, I'll, 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 I'll mess up saying this, but you know what I like about what Carlos wrote so well about was that it it whatever it is, is a is is a little tiny like a little tiny itch a little tiny knock in a way that you tend to dismiss mm -hmm. and i I, th I think the seeing is beginning to perceive that as something beyond what it is presented to be 
and it tends to happen from within us. And that's the, that's the best I can make of it all, which is that seeing is, is just paying attention to what you're not able to pay attention to in the, in the present kind of way of seeing things. And that's, that's the, uh, I read this quote from Jeff Kripal at one point, and he was quoting somebody else. And it's, it's a person who had a near-death experience and went beyond and comes back and it says something like, um, it, it's much weirder and there is another world and it's this world. And that's, you know, that's the thing that I, the mystery is mysterious, but it's just here. Like, and so it's just beckoning all the time. We just, as you said earlier, the <laughs> way, the way we're socialized to, uh, to not actually pay attention to what's, what's beckoning us. And, um, and uh, you know, for me, I just go about my daily life and do my thing and not really aware that I've got some of the most profound invitations that are knocking at my door in little tiny ways and whispers all day long. That's pretty radical. It is pretty radical. 48 bands of realities inside each individual bubble of perception, and only two are accessible to us. Yeah. The rest are in the unknowable. But, well, so before we finish, what uh, where do you want to direct people? I'll certainly include stuff at the beginning, but is there are there a few places in particular you want to send people? Uh, com if they're interested, or uh, crowsnestshamanism.com. Cool. Y'all check it out. Michael, what an absolute pleasure to sit with you and read your books, certainly, but hear your stories and talk to you. This is really a gift. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to do it. I like to interview you sometime. You're on. <laughs> You're on, man. Control.